It is 13.01. You take a step back and watch a gaffer Walter of Durham as he admires his work. After all, he's done a lot of what you can see in Westminster Abbey. The gilding, the decoration and the like. He sure is a master craftsman. He even built a spectacular barge for the Queen at one point, but that was well before your time. There's something about this chair, though. It's beautifully carved and gilded with gold, festooned with incredible coloured glass, and has a relief of Edward the Confessor in its back. You think you can see a pride in him that you haven't seen before. Maybe it just looks so good next to that lump of stone that a few of the boys are now lifting carefully into the cavity that your master left in the chair. So that's the Stone of Schoon, you think to yourself. Those Scots don't have much imagination. When the English build a throne, you know they built a throne. Edward I had brought the stone back with him from Schoon Abbey after smashing the Scots to bits. Everyone in England had rejoiced. Not so much because of the big lump of stone, but you know, whatever. They say it was the throne the Scottish monarchs sat on when they were crowned. You shrug. Like you say, the Scots couldn't hope to create something as beautiful as this coronation chair. So why not just sit in a lump of stone? The stone slides into place and the boys stand back, allowing Walter to take another look at it in situ. He doesn't dare sit on it, but he checks carefully that the stone aligns with the wood where one would usually sit. He says it's perfect. It had better be. Edward I isn't known for being an easygoing patron. He's also about half a foot taller than you. They don't call him Longshanks for nothing. Everybody standing around the new coronation throne knows what this means. The future kings of England will be the kings of Scots too. After all, there's an inscription in the stone, rumoured to have been carved by King Kenneth MacAlpin himself, which reads, If fates go right, where'er the stone is found, the Scots shall monarchs of that realm be crowned. Edward fancied the idea that if it was going to be built into a chair in London, then there would never be a Scottish king again. This is Scotland, a podcast about history and where we made it. I'm Michael Park. It is 1950, not quite Christmas Eve. You're hidden in Westminster Abbey, freezing and questioning your life choices when suddenly a night watchman finds you. He assumes you're drunk and have stayed long past your welcome in the relative safety of the ancient abbey. He does his due diligence and asks you a couple of questions, but he's way more interested in getting back to his three-bar fire and his book to read too much into your motives. Not exactly the most salubrious of locations to find Ian Hamilton, Taylor's son, law student, Scottish nationalist. But there you are, being shown out of the side door of an abbey in London. That side door is not made of heavy oak wood as you'd thought when you started researching the abbey in your bedroom in Glasgow. It's a side door made of flimsy pine that leads out into a builder's yard. Handy, you think since you're not a drunk that stayed too long in the relative safety of an ancient abbey. You're a burglar, and you've been casing the joint. You're not in it for the money, though. 
Money never even crossed your mind on the long drive down from Glasgow. For you, this is all about national pride. The way you see it, the English took something that rightfully belongs to you. Well, it belongs to all Scots. You're going to give the country a Christmas present that will go down in history as possibly the hottest Christmas gift of the century. That's hot in the sense of the number of police officers looking for it, rather than its popularity. You're part of the Scottish Covenant Association, a group who advocate for Scottish devolution. The Scottish National Party decided to change to a policy of pursuing all-out independence in 1942, and the founders of the association believed that pushing for the more moderate step of devolution was the way to go first. You and the other three people you travelled to London with, in a wee convoy of two Ford Anglias, believe firmly in independence for Scotland. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing what you're planning to do. In your mind, Scotland is on the verge of becoming an also-ran. The country seems to be on its last legs, and if no one else is going to restore its national pride, then you suppose it's going to have to be you. You are going to steal the Stone of Destiny. Or to put it another way, you're going to liberate it. Since you got chucked out last night, two of your accomplices are going to go back first thing in the morning to learn everything they can about the night watchman's shift patterns. You have an advantage. After all, this is Westminster Abbey, the most venerated seat of English Christianity. Nobody's going to expect a robbery, because stealing from a church, any church, especially at Christmas, is pretty base behaviour. So when you slip through the construction yard, and in through the door you were chucked out of, you find yourself in Poet's Corner, surrounded by the great and the good. Chaucer, Dickens, Kipling, all that lot. You sneak through to the chapel, containing the tomb of Edward I. You pass the giant marble tomb, inscribed with the words Edvardus Primus Scotorum, Malleus Pactum, Serva, Edward I, Hammer of the Scots, Keep Troth. You consider leaving a token of your disrespect for the notion on the tomb, but you don't have much time. Just past it lies a pretty dilapidated looking chair. If you're honest, you'd expected it to be a bit more... grand. The gilding you'd heard so much about has been stripped away to the wood, and it looks like people have been carving their names and messages into it. There are some gaudy-looking gold lions at the feet which weren't part of the original design, just like they inscribed that rubbish about showing loyalty onto Edward I's tomb in the 1500s they'd stuck these feet on sometime in the 18th century. You're a student at the end of the day. You've done your research. Anyway, this is no time to get sidetracked. In the torchlight, you can see the stone hiding away under the wooden seat of the big chair. Apparently, when they'd first made the chair, they used to just sit directly on the stone, just like the Scottish kings of old did. The thought makes your blood boil as you start to jemmy apart the bar which runs in front of the stone. It begins to splinter and snap. It's the first time you've felt even a little bit guilty. 
The chair itself doesn't belong to you. If you like Scotland, you probably know what I'm about to ask you to do by now. If you can, leave us a rating and a review on your podcast app of choice. I can't begin to tell you how much it helps. And of course, if you fancy, you can support us for as little as $2 per month on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash Scotland History Podcast. Happy holidays. Enjoy the rest of the show. Now comes the big problem. The stone weighs 152 kilograms. That's 23 stone in the old money which you very much work in. How are you, three scrawny students, supposed to force it out from its prison in the seat of the coronation chair? Brute force isn't going to do it. You realise that after trying for a few minutes. The stone won't budge. So with one of you holding the torch, another using the crowbar to shift the stone, and you pushing from behind, the stone of Schoon begins to move. A plaque on the chair which reads Coronation Chair and Stone falls off. You catch it in mid-air and stuff it into your coat pocket. They're not going to be needing it anymore after all. And then with one final effort the stone breaks free of its confines. Two of your accomplices Gavin and Alan stagger back with the giant stone dragging their arms groundward. Jesus, this thing was heavy. Alan suggests that someone puts their coat down and you squirm out of yours and lay it on the ground. This'll let you pull the stone by its iron rings and the coat should allow it to slide along the ground. That's the theory anyway. You pull on one of the giant iron rings And instead of a giant stone creaking its way along the flagstones of the chapel, the stone lifts up and away. It's much lighter than it was a second ago, and Gavin, who's holding the other ring, seems much lower down than you are. That's not good. That's really, really bad. The torchlight catches the section of the stone that you're holding. It's about the size of a football and is, without a doubt, no longer attached to the rest of the stone. We've broken Scotland's luck. You point out to Alan that the stone was already cracked. Your torch picks out discoloration that proves it. Some careless Englishman has cracked it in antiquity. And then Gavin politely reminds you both that you're in the middle of a daring heist and the debate portion of the evening might be better left for later. Gavin and Alan take the big piece and you sprint off, toting the hundred pound piece of stone like it's a rugby ball. If it weighs something, you don't feel it. Kay, Kay's your other accomplice and the getaway driver, sees you coming and opens the door, letting you shove the broken piece of stone into the back. You dash back inside to where Alan and Gavin are dragging the stone towards you. Helping them, you accidentally crush the little plaque that you'd stowed in your coat pocket. It's a miracle that the night watchman doesn't hear anything. Hopefully, he's still more interested in his three-bar fire than in roving gangs of Scottish nationalists. As you drag the stone through the door and out into the cold night air, Kay appears from cover in the car. You jog over to tell her that you need a few more minutes. This thing's heavy after all and this really isn't any time to be macho. There's a policeman coming this way, she tells you. 
He'd seen her. You both grab each other and start kissing, your hands exploring nothing but the back seat for a coat to throw over the broken chunk of stone. When the policeman raps at your window, he's initially a bit suspicious, but your cock and bull story about being on tour and turning up too late to find a room seems to work for him. He even suggests a darkened car park down the road where you can, uh, rest for the night. It's a pretty weird exchange to be quite honest, but you know the car park just fine. It's where the other Ford Anglia is parked. It is now 5am on Christmas morning, and the policeman seems content to while away the remainder of his shift chatting with you. You drive off with Kay, leaving Alan and Gavin behind. You'll go back, but the performance has to be a good one. She drops you off and you hurry back to the alley, only to find neither of them there. The stone's still there, hidden from view behind the hoarding, but they must have panicked and done a runner. Eventually they turn back up, having wandered off to look nonchalant in case they ran into an officer of the constabulary. You all get the stone loaded into the back of one of the four danglias, and the car sags at the back. Gavin starts to get itchy. What if the alarm gets raised and someone sees a heavily laden Ford Anglia driving north on Christmas Day? It's not exactly subtle, is it? You all agree to split up and head north separately, with Kay having stowed her piece of the stone in the Midlands and Gavin heading home by train. You and Alan drive back to Scotland through roadblocks and checkpoints. Words got out, and the government has closed the border to stop anyone carrying the stone north. Luckily, you've already stashed the larger part of the stone in a field in Kent. By the way, a field is a great place to hide a big dod of stone. No one's going to be looking for a stone in a field. A fortnight later, and the Stone of Destiny is in Glasgow. In a classic example of waiting until the heat dies down, you return to England after the police search has died away and recover both pieces of the stone. You take it to a sympathetic stonemason who just happens to be Robert Gray, the founder of the Scottish National Party, and he puts the stone back together using a brass rod, which he says contains a message rolled up on a little piece of paper. The only person who ever finds out what the note says is Gray's wife. Its contents were in his will. In years to come, they'll say that this is where the rumours come from, that the stone of destiny that you leave on the high altar of our Broth Abbey, where the declaration of our Broth was signed, might not be the real stone. Of course, a similar rumour has persisted for 700-odd years. They say that the real stone was hidden from Longshanks in the 1200s. But how long does an imposter have to be an imposter before it becomes the real thing? Only Robert Gray knows the answer. He claims to have put the message inside the true stone of destiny. Either way, the authorities are pleased that the stone, or a stone, whatever, has been returned and makes its way back to Westminster Abbey in February of 1952. The police keep investigating, and they interview all of you. Kay, Gavin and Alan stay quiet, but eventually you confess to the whole thing. You're not prosecuted. You knew you wouldn't be. After all, 
the removal of the stone had suddenly thrown the prospect of Scottish self-governance into stark light. The government wouldn't risk sparking a political incident by prosecuting nationalists. The Stone of Schoon is in place as Queen Elizabeth is crowned in 1953. It remains there until 1996, when it is moved to Edinburgh Castle on the proviso that it be provided to Westminster for the coronation of future monarchs. You can still see it there today, although there are consultations about moving it to a new permanent exhibition in Perth, near Schoon Abbey. After all, it's not called the Stone of Edinburgh, is it? You've been listening to Scotland. It was written and produced by me, Michael Park, and is a production of Be Quiet Media. Many of the little details about the removal of the stone itself come from Ian Hamilton's book, No Stone Unturned. Additional voices in this episode were by Chris Moriarty. The music for every episode of Scotland is by the true King of Scots, Mitch Bain. You can check out more of his work at mitchbain.bequiet.media. Jamie Mowat does stunning illustrations for us, which you can see in our episode art. Check out more and buy prints at tidlin, that's T-I-D-L-I-N dot com. Scotland is supported by Chris Lingwood and listeners like you on Patreon. You can get loads more from us for as little as $2 a month at patreon.com forward slash Scotland History Podcast. You can find out more about the show and read transcripts on our website, scotlandpodcast.net. And we're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. All you have to do is search Scotland, a Scottish history podcast. Thanks for listening. Look after one another. Wear a mask. We'll see you next time.